0: Well, certainly it's the case that some people will find uh, this effort that we're talking about much easier than others. But what we make of that is um, another thing altogether. I don't know what your, your experience has been with these things, but in any life task, um, if our minds are preoccupied with comparing ourselves to other people, then we're not really doing it. We're not really there for it. You know, I, I can remember when I was learning to play a musical instrument as a kid, and, and I was looking at other people who were better than me, and and it would bring up all sorts of feelings of inadequacy, and you know, um, or if were some things that actually I was better at, and uh, then I would get puffed up and pleased with myself, and I'd just be cruising for a bruising. You know, it's just a matter of time before I fell on my face. So one of life's great, uh, great tasks is to, to give up this comparing, mind, uh, compulsive comparing, comparing, tendency, um, and then the, whether it's difficult or easy is not an issue. I think okay, I think it's it's helpful to to acknowledge because when you listen to somebody talking about meditation, somebody finds it easy, it's just it's like you just think, oh, how can it be so marvelous? You know, they're going on about love and light and bliss and happiness and you might be just struggling with all sorts of early life traumas and hideous scenarios of the things that can happen in the future and and struggling you know, with a mind that doesn't stop thinking and uh, and there are other people who just they just sit there and their just mind goes blank and they just they come and they ask questions, "What do you do when your mind is full of light uh. <laughs> I say well i don 't know go see somebody else <laughs> 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 that 's not my bag <laughs> so I think it 's helpful to to say it's different for people now. I think just having acknowledged that means that when we listen to teachings or we read um, people 's Encouragement or efforts to be encouraging. Um, that some teachings will make more sense to us than others, and, and that yeah, that, that's that is actually that is important because, uh, you know, as I, for the reason I said, uh, you know, somebody you know somebody who doesn't have a lot of difficulties will need a different kind of instruction. So we need to find a teacher and a teaching need to be prepared to listen for whether the teacher or the teaching actually connects with my condition, not just to assume that that um, one teacher or one teaching works for everybody. And certainly, that's not Buddhist understanding. These things. There's all sorts of different ways of talking about these things. We're all different. So, way back in the time of the Buddha, it was um, the case that some people's uh, practice was... Um, characterized by a lot of of happiness. The Buddha's right-hand man, Sariputta, his path of practice was referred to as Sukhapati vimuti, which is liberation characterized by a lot of pleasurable feeling. And uh, we told Sariputta he just heard a few words and just settled the matter, just had a lot of happiness in the process. Whereas his best friend, his closest buddy, Moggallana, uh, he took quite a bit longer and uh, his path of liberation was referred to as dukkha pati or a path of liberation uh, characterized by feelings of, or associated with feelings of, of uh, suffering. So that's always been the case that people have uh, different experiences. Now, I myself don't think it's really worthwhile asking the question, why? That question doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, because it is this way and to ask a question why you know, why do I have such a difficult time and, and they just have such a lovely time And uh, as I say I don't really find that relevant no, if, if you find that relevant well you've got to find a few answers but I would suggest that, that like if the mind is really disturbed why is it so difficult for me I think if as I say if that is a disturbance well then it's okay to make some effort to to um, look and find some answers, but there's some effort to find some answers, I don't think that's not going to really make a big difference. Um, we can become preoccupied with trying to find out why, but that doesn't necessarily change the situation. This is still how it is for me. You know, I've got this kind of mind, and my mind is uh, very full of images. During the meditation, just now, I was into staircases. <laughs> you maybe thought I was having some profound kind of meditation i mean I, I was visualizing a staircase in the retreat house we're building this retreat house at the moment and and we 've got to have a staircase and what 's it going to look like and my mind was just i kept these images kept coming up all the time of staircases and banisters and and that 's the my mind is and i 've tried for many years to. And deal with these this preoccupation with mental imaging, and I would talk to various people about it, and and they um, what they came to me with was was basically you've got to stop it. I try very hard to stop it, and but it built br- but it just built up a lot of tension within me, and then other people say, oh no, you mustn't stop it. That's your creative potential. You know, just let it go and just go with it. And so I tried that as well, and you know I couldn't sleep. If, I, if I'm in meditation and these images come into the mind and I dwell on them, they'll keep me awake all night. You know, they're, they're just the stir the mind gets full of kind of coursing with energy, uh, and it can't sleep all night. And that certainly doesn't work. And what I did find for myself was just to uh, say, "Well, it's just like that. It's the mind goes in this particular way, but I don't have to think about this now. Here I am in Cornwall, having a nice quiet time on my own in Daniel's Cottage. And what they're doing up there, they, they, we can make the contract for the staircase next week. I don't have to think about it now. But if the images arise in the mind, that's it. They've already risen. No judgment. And that, for me, that's what works. Yeah. Not to say that you should or shouldn't have this kind of a mind. I don't find that helpful at all. I've never found it helpful. I've had a lot of people tell me all sorts of things, that your mind should be like this, your mind shouldn't be like that, you shouldn't have these kind of things in your mind. I mean, ever since I was a little wee my mother was telling me you shouldn't have those kind of things in your mind, and I tried to stop them, and they just became even more interesting. And <laughs> didn't help at all. And she got quite worried about me. <laughs> well, if she knew the things in my mind these days, she'd still be worried about me. But I think there's actually a lot less cause for worry because it's not what comes into the mind but it's the way we receive it that makes a difference. And, and the fantasies of staircases come to your mind, if that's what you get off on, or as I do. Um, you know, all the lights. You know, A couple of weeks ago was the lights. We had the electrician. And I really like doing the lighting whenever there's a chance to do lighting. Even as a kid I always used to light bulbs all around my room and it's just my get off on light and and um, so my mind would I'd go to set meditation and have a the Dumber halls full of people and wanting a wise guidance and I would give a guided meditation and then I would stop and sit and then I'd start seeing you know up lighters and down lighters and pendants and and my mind would you know, these images would come and that's just the way my mind works as I say you could say why and you could say, well, um, this is the way your planets were configured when you were born. You know, if, you, if you're into astrology, you could go like that. Or maybe in my past life, I was, uh, I was, um, you know, an interior decorator. You might, if you're into past lives, and that story makes sense to you. Or you know, say, well, you're a repressed neurotic monk, and so sensuality is just possessing your mind. And so it's, there's all sorts of why questions and, and answers, and as a, you can look at them for a while, but I think um, just just to the degree where your mind is not p- obsessed with being anxious about why you're like this and somebody else is like that, to say, this is how my mind is. My mind thinks a lot, or my mind visualizes a lot. And don't take it too personally, you just say, well it's like this, you can step back from it. And uh, it's like my ears, you know, my ears stick out. And you say, why do my ears stick out? Why have I got such big ears? You know, well, you can figure out a reason, maybe in genes or something, you know, because I lay on the pillow the wrong way when I was a baby or something. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter so long as you can hear, you know, if you've got sticky out ears. And ultimately, with your mind, it doesn't really matter what passes through it or what sort of patterns of mental activity you have. It's not unimportant, but the most important thing is, is the manner that we receive the activity of the mind. It's the most important thing, and that's, to me, that's the that's the underlying view that we have to hold and cultivate. That if it's if we cultivate this non-judgmental here and now awareness, and I really mean that non-judgmental here and now then if your mind is always thinking then whenever you, you sit in meditation you say okay go ahead and think So, thinking mind and you sit there but you're, you're aware of your body posture upright, alert, feeling the breathing and then you lose it and you quit up in thinking but then you remember and that's it as soon as you remember that's it That's. All we have to do is that, that moment of remembering, that's all you have to do in meditation, is that moment of remembering. You've had some <laughs> moments of remembering, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. And that's all there is to it. There isn't yeah. anything more to it, as far as I can tell. It's just the frequency of the remembering that changes. Yeah. But that's it. Now, if we don't understand that, we might think, oh, I've remembered, I've come back in the past, you have had moments of clarity, but then they go away. So obviously those weren't real moments of clarity. Well, I'm very grateful to my teacher, Jin Chah, for pointing out you know, that that's an unhelpful way to approach it. He said he used to say he said it's like water dripping. You get a drip, 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 like moments of mindfulness. You know, you're there, then you are, and you come back again. Then you go away. You come back again, drip. But then, uh, each time you remember, if it's really here and now, judgment-free awareness that's present. And you're not going to say, "Oh, I shouldn't have forgotten." You already forgotten. You get quite. If you if you inhibit that, and you remember, and each time you just learn a little bit more, just learn a little bit more how to remember, and it's incremental. It's again, it's just like any other life task, as I referred to before. You know, typing. I mean, one typing lesson, the next typing lesson. It's not phenomenal difference. Or you know, driving a car, one driving lessons from there, or riding waves. I don't know if you're into surfing, but there's some nice waves around here. And in New Zealand, we've got nice waves. And you don't necessarily learn in one day or two days, but you get a feeling for it. You give yourself to it, and you get a feeling for it. And each time, there's an incremental increase in ability, and you don't always see it happening. You know, all we can do basically is trust in that process. Trust in the process so over and over again, beginning again and valuing that moment, that drip drip. and then it becomes drip drip, drip, drippity drippity drip, and then it's a it's a stream. That's what we're looking for. The stream of awareness, the, the stream of awareness that is uninterrupted by getting lost now at the moment for all of us we tend to get lost you know, we're there and we've got some presence and that feels good and, but then it goes off again now as soon as you remember this, the thing to remember when we remember is how to remember to remember without getting lost again so when we remember then remember no judgment your mind is full of thoughts and you're thinking that's fine You remembered, even if you only remember twice in the whole 20 minutes. If when you remember twice, you remember without judgment, you say, all right, okay, the mind's like this, this mind is like this, no judgment, it's just so. The next time, there'll be three moments, or maybe four. It increases to the degree that we're meeting it without generating some counterforce. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's so easy to, to take a position against ourselves and get off on having a position. That's, that's the disposition, actually, in Buddhist speak, that's the disposition of a worldling. A worldling is somebody who fixates on an aspect or a relationship with the world in a rigid way. Now, the world, in terms of reality, every aspect of the world, inner and outer, every aspect of the world is changing. It's all in a state of flux. every aspect of it is changing. The only thing that's not changing is the law of change itself. Everything is changing. So, but we tend to grow up and get a kind of a, 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 an okay, agreeable way of according with it, meeting with it, coping with it, dealing with it and then we set ourselves. We, we can tend to fix ourselves and say, right, okay, this is, this is life like this and I'm like this and and we we can take a fixed position, and that these fixed positions are actually what tend to limit us. Now, uh, it doesn't matter, you know, how old we are or how young we are, or what religion we belong to, or what gender we are, or anything else. The reality is still the same. Everything is changing, and if we allow ourselves to get into a a relationship of a fixed position then it's um, it creates stress it, it, it creates tension and but that is the disposition of, of, of uh, That's the disposition of a worldling we get a sense of security I feel like I know who I am because I know what i 'm against and what I 'm in favor of i 'm against you know this and I'm in favor of that and and from the world perspective, from our education, you know, so if you don't have an opinion or you don't have a view on something, you're pathetic. You know, how do you feel about whaling? You know, what's your view on whaling? What's your view on George W.? You know, you, you, you've got to have a view on these things. And um, there are some things that we just don't know what's right or wrong a worldly perspective a worldling actually feels threatened when they don't know something yeah. and that's what I was saying at the beginning of meditation to find a quality of confidence that sustains us in practice but this is not a confidence that, Oh, now I know what to do I know what to do I do this, I do that and I don't do this, I don't do that that's still a very worldly perspective It's like I, me, know what to do and what not to do where in truth often we don't know what to do and we don't know what's right, but from a reality perspective, we know that we don't know, and that's where our that's where our, our our sense of security comes from. We know we don't know. If that's true, if we if we don't know, then we simply know we don't know, and that's that gives us that's that, that it's a different sort of security. It's 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 the security that comes from. Having a, a, a broad based awareness which is able to even accommodate not knowing. Can you follow what I'm saying? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, when uncertainty arises in meditation, we know there's uncertainty there. Yeah? I'm not sure what I should do. Alright, oh, okay. Yeah. Our worldliness tends to I've got to find out what to do. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I, gotta, I can't stand the thought that maybe I'm, I'm wasting my time. I'm going to waste my life. I'm on the wrong path. And and you know, it doesn't matter how, what sort of m- amazing experience we might have, we still might be on the wrong path. So, uh, our effort is to to be able to 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 be interested in cultivating the ability to meet what comes to us in life and give ourselves to it, accord with it. And if we can cultivate that in formal meditation, it is here and now, not lost in the fantasy of the past or fantasy of the future, judgment-free, that is not getting off and taking a position for or against anything, just receiving it, allowing it. Then there's an open-hearted, open-minded, feeling awareness of the reality of this moment. And then in discernment, intelligence is free to really consider you're there for it as a whole body-mind, as a whole human being. See, you know, what do we do with this? We don't have to jump to conclusions out of fear of insecurity. You know. We don't have to reject things out of some sort of moral indoctrination. See, well, maybe this, you know, we can allow even impossible possibilities into our mind. You know. okay. Now, um, to refer to uh, Robert, to question... Us comment um, in regards to what's the place of, of, of posture in this. In training ourselves in formal meditation, um, the we assume a, a physical form that supports an inner disposition. Yeah so the the um, the inner disposition that we're interested in is is one of steadiness and and quietude and Balance, and maybe that's a good enough way of talking about it. Um, the reason we have a Buddha image? One of the reasons why we have a Buddha image is there's this outer form, which gives us something to look at, which connects with an inner disposition. It's a word I like. It it's, a, it's a, a, an inner feeling of how to be inwardly. And the Buddha image is not sort of crumpled over and he kind of shoulders up around his ears, you know, tense and worried and anxious and thinking about nice, terrible, meaningful problems. But he's also not kind of laid back and got a joint in his hand. <laughs> the Buddha is present, very present, grounded on, you know, nice, firm base, well placed on, on the earth, planet Earth. He's not up in the clouds. The back is straight, unobstructed, channel of energy. And his head is you know, sitting comfortably on his shoulders. And heart is open, belly relaxed. And this is uh, a position of being open to life. Um, but also his eyes are cast down. So he's not just kind of out there taking whatever comes to you know, him. He's, he's basically choosing to receive this present moment is not just saying whatever's okay by me, and that's certainly a meditation. It's not a case whatever's okay by me. It's not. You know, we we can't take whatever. You know, we need to sometimes protect ourselves. You know, if we become too vulnerable, mm. too much stuff can come in, and um, even sensually, just by looking at all the bright colours in this room if we had loud noises going and lots of smells of, of frying bacon and, and all sorts of interesting things that, that you get all stirred up so we don't have smells of frying bacon or, or um, loud music or noise yeah, and we close our eyes And so we limit the stimulus as a skillful means it's not a rejection of these things but it's a, it's a skillful means so as to support inner quietude and the same with the body posture. The inner stillness and inner quietude, that's the point. That's the spirit, if you like. The form is there to support the spirit. Ultimately, the freedom is completely independent of whether there's the smell of frying bacon or your other noises or smells or sensations or whether your body is active or still or lying down. Freedom has got nothing to do with time or place or sensory impingement. Freedom is a question of the heart's capacity to receive the experience with or without interfering with it. But we're not there yet. Yeah. So the effort is, is is what to do to support this, this aspiration for freedom, this interest in, in living life in this world as it is, without having to manipulate and control it all the time to make it agreeable. Uh, how to live in this world with, with compassion and with understanding. So the body posture um, is about that. That's, that's the thinking behind it. But again, every individual, people are very different. Uh, and we in our culture, in our time, this time, are more different than I think probably any human beings ever been before, because one of the reasons is mobility. We don't grow up in one place. We're not subjected to a collective, you know, cultural uh, indoctrination or or processing. We all get trained in different ways, and so you know, some people have some a lot of activity and are in their bodies. Other people grow up without, you know, just up in their heads all the time, and you know the diet you eat, and or if you're in Asia. Still, some kids grow up on the floor and you know, their hips and pelvis are very flexible and, and so on. Well, we have to take that into account in, in, in how we develop a body posture that's going to support the heart's aspiration for freedom. The principle is still the same in the sense that we, we hold a posture still, open, upright, available to life, and yet contained. All those things still hold. But how that trans- how that translates for this individual, for you, is up to us to find out. Uh, I don't trust any teacher who tells me, you've got to sit like this. I, uh, I just say, okay, see you later. <laughs> I, I see many people ruin their knees by believing that somebody else knows what's good for them. We do need to really pay attention to what works for our body. Having said all that, um in meditation it's it's um, it's essential basically to be willing to um, put up with discomfort, not to be too subtle about it um, you know it's not going to necessarily feel good to sit still for an extended period of time now where the where the just right level of frustration is is again a very personal matter um, at the core of Buddhist teaching is the understanding that because of our habits of clinging because of this tendency to always do this clinging thing to experience uh, there gets constellated a perception of, of individuality of me, of self and from the uh, awakened realized perspective this is just not what it looks like the sense of meanness is not a fixed, solid thing at all. It sure feels like it. You know, if somebody insults me, there does seem to be somebody here who has an uprush of passion, and and it's you know me who's been assaulted, and me who acts on it or doesn't act on it, and it's me who's responsible for the consequences, and so on. It really does feel like there's a solid, substantial me here. Um, however. If you don't have to look very far before you see that this so-called me is not a substantial fixed thing it's a process and uh, so primary task in, in Buddhist practice is how to how to undermine in a skillful way the false view of self I don't mean regressing into some state of dissociation or other way Ego boundaries dissolve, and you, you have a breakdown. That's 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 a totally of diff- a totally different order. That's something else altogether. But assuming that our ego structures are sufficiently well established, and there is a, a functional perception of meanness, that isn't threatened by asking questions like "Who am I?" or "What is this self?" So, assuming that these ego structures are in place, then we need to be prepared to actually th- allow them to be a bit challenged. And so, holding the posture still, holding still, and then when it feels like I want to move, uh, to be willing to inhibit that, not out of some idealistic willful notion that if I suffer it's good for me, that's, that's again completely um, off the wall, that's completely inappropriate and in, in coming back to a place of balance. Um, suffering is not good for me. what is of value is not being driven by conditioned desires so as we all are I want this happens uh, I don't get it then I feel frustrated now that is a real problem for us and does that is that it feels like a real problem it manifests as a real problem but is it actually a real problem there is no way in terms of reality that we can all get what we all want all the time. And it's actually quite simple to arrive at the sense that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a big question in there, this whole business of my relationship to my desires. And we need to take that question on personally and say, well, you know, well, what is this matter of I want and feeling like I have to get what I want, if I don't get what I want, then, you know, feeling justified and getting indignant and frustrated. What is this? Now to be interested in that is something we take into our meditation. And that's part of the posture, being willing to hold the posture still and feel the tendency to want to move and just inhibit it, just hold it, just stay still and feel what it feels like to not get my own way consciously. Remember, we're not doing this because you know torturing ourselves is some virtuous activity. But because we're interested in the dynamic of what happens. Now if we're not interested, well then we then the consequences again, you know, worldliness. If you get defined by worldly conditions. Yesterday coming down on the train from Newcastle, there was a lot of people being defined by worldly conditions. a train and rider normally takes eight or nine hours, which is long enough, thank you very much, took fourteen. And it, it's just like it was just one thing after another. Some vandals cut a power line, and so we had to sit somewhere between Sheffield and Wakefield for two or two hours or so. And and then the train came in late, and so they terminated our train in Birmingham, and and so then they had to put us on another train, which was loaded, and and then that train, you know, got, stum- got stuck somewhere else, and and then there was something else, and and then they announced, well, we we don't think there's going to be any more problems. And so I rang Daniel on the mobile phone. I said, I think we're going to get there, Daniel, in such and such a time. I don't think there's going to be any more problems. And the next thing I said, oh, well, we've had a weather warning. And at Dawlish, the waves are high. And of course everybody laughs. and says, take a break. Waves are high. And and sure enough, these waves start lashing the train. And and the next thing, all the power's gone. And so we're stuck for another hour or so. and, And there's a lot of people not getting their own way. And the booze was running out. The water was still free. But um, they didn't have a good management, some of these individuals. I thought Virgin Trains did very well, actually. I have great compliments for for these poor conductors. I think they coped with the situation admirably. But some of the individuals, their personal management program wasn't really up to much. There was a lot of sense of, you know, I'm going to write letters. And I was thinking, you know, I want to say, you should go on a train in India. You know, I mean, it's just like being in a mobile hotel room, that train. It's sheer luxury. You can just sit there with your book and read a nice book. There's nothing wrong with it. I I got well through a a nice book. I had a 14-hour train journey and arrived and there's Daniel smiling to meet me. I mean, no big deal. And it didn't have to be a problem, actually. had some water to drink. But people were complaining, where's the food, where's the booze? (laughs) This this socket of my seat here is not working. Where's the free music? I mean, they're lucky they got any music. Well, what was happening, of course, was the the force of my way was frustrated by perfectly understandable circumstances. I mean, why shouldn't they have a high tide once every 50 or 100 years that, you know, splash on the train and the poor train loses its electricity? Why shouldn't it happen? There's no reason in the world why that shouldn't happen. There's nothing immoral about that. It's just one of those things. Life is like this. No problem. In terms of reality, there's no problem. In terms of individual experience for a lot of people, massive problem. And all their coping strategies, booze and food and everything were all worn out and they were left with a raw reality, which was just a slump in their chair and use up their mobile phones, and then the mobile phones all went dead and there was some peace in the carriage. You know, all the batteries ran down. So to acknowledge that this uh, force of feeling I just got to get what I want I just got to get it I just got to have it that we want to look at we want to feel that in the body and so holding the body posture in an intentional way intentional form gives us a, a frame of reference which then gives us a perspective and if we're always changing our body posture every time we sit or we're always moving every time we want to we never get a perspective on this this force this from the Buddhist perspective, there's precious energy. When we've only got so much energy, this heart energy. We've only got so much of it. But uh, for most of us, a lot of the time, it's being actually you know, used up in all sorts of compulsive ways. It's precious energy. And it's the energy that's going to purify us. It's the energy that's going to manifest one day as wisdom and compassion, selfless wisdom, selfless compassion, in the love that isn't actually being generated on the basis of what am I going to get back. Okay. It's the same energy. But... In meditation, we come to discover that actually it's in the service of ego desires a lot of the time. And we want to feel that. We want to sit there and feel it. And can we feel it without getting judgmental about it? And that's why I always emphasize from the very beginning in meditation, learning to recognize the judging mind for what it is. We're not trying to stop judging mind because that would be another judgment there's nothing wrong with the judging mind the judging mind is just so but it's only one functioning of our minds and we need to be able to see it as such and and let go of it so that you know when I'm not getting what I want and I've got some pains in my knee or I've got pains in my back we can feel it and I want to move that's fine want to move no judgment you don't have to move just want just want it doesn't matter what you want it really doesn't matter what you want it doesn't matter at all what you want You can want anything at all. It doesn't matter what you want. It's how we relate to it that matters. That really does matter. Because if we grasp at our desires or we believe we are our desires, then we get defined by them, we get shaped by them. And, you know, and sure, you can look at some people and they're shaped by their desires. So, the uh, training in body posture is very much a part of actually cultivating meditation, but it's a very individual thing. We need to feel for ourselves um, what's right, what works for us, and supporting this uh, openness, availability, but also containment. So um, you might have some more comments about that, which is fine, but I, I'd like to move on to the other questions. Uh, also, because time is moving on. I don't know how much time we've got. Should I carry on for a bit longer? Yeah? Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, you were asking about um you know whether five precepts guys you know have the have a real chance a real you know shot at things or whether you'd like the old nags that just kind of come and last and and not really up to much and, um, which is connected to the precept training and um, and your question was about the fifth precept about alcohol and drugs and, and you prescription, drugs and so on. Well, I I don't know what the books say about these things and I you know, so I, I can't quote you um, scriptural references that whether they would mean much to you or not, I don't know but I, I don't think that they're altogether helpful. Um, in terms of saying who got a chance at what, I think um, I would lay more score by by um, witnessing other people's other people's uh, example and also considering for oneself um, and also relevant to this is <coughs> whether you, when you say you know, have a chance at it a shot at it whether you're talking about um, improving the quality of your life here and now whether you're talking about some sort of imagined ultimate enlightenment uh, I don't know. If it's the latter, I personally don't really have anything to say about it because um, whilst I do trust in the principle of, of uh, living a life of complete unobstructed relationship with everything, I trust that that's a possibility. Uh, my practice and my interest is in seeing the degree to which I am feeling obstructed at any moment to whatever experience may be taking place. That's what I'm interested in that's what I can deal with and I believe that's what you can deal with what anybody can deal in fact that's all we can deal with is the relationship we have with our experience in this present moment and as I was saying to Robert the form of the physical form of meditation uh, is there in service of <coughs> supporting our heart's aspiration the spirit of the practice likewise the form of Social form or conventional behavioural structure that is defined in the five precepts or the more um, sophisticated or um, detailed precepts of a, of a monastic um, or a nun. Um, those forms, those structures that talk about what we, you know, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Those forms are there in service of the spirit of learning how for ourselves to live in a more intimate receptivity to the present reality that's all as far as I can see that's all the four and I don't, you know, I don't think there's any guarantees in these things um, if the mind is is looking for a guaranteed formula like I want to know that I'm you know if I do this and I make myself do this for a period of time then I know that I'm, I'm guaranteed some <coughs> reward in the end Well, that's okay for children, you know. I think you know we do sometimes treat children like that. But I think you know for adults, we need to respect that we've got minds that can see much more than that, and like the contemplation of the possibility of training our minds to live in a here and now awareness. Something that Buddha encouraged over and over again uh, is something we should really pick up and not just keep dwelling on, well, if I do this, this, and this, then sometime in the future I'll be guaranteed some benefit. Uh, We might want that, but and in the beginning that might inspire us to practice in a certain way. But I think once we get started, then the task is really to come back and come to see for ourselves, as it's happening, what the benefit of this practice is. And I know, you know, I've seen in others, and I know in my own case before I became a, a, a Buddhist monk, that, you know, when I compromised the, ba- the principles of the basic five precepts, there was a direct relevance, for sure. You know, a direct, significant consequence of, of compromising the precepts. And, uh, you know, something simple like um, telling a lie. If you, you're practicing, developing in a quietude and focus and the mind really becomes still and you, you experience the, the intense sense of pleasure and, and joy that comes from a mind that is really steady. You know that and so you are you, accustomed to that and then at the end of the day you are practicing meditation and then early that day you, you, know, you shouted your mouth off and exaggerated the truth to somebody about something. It was just, you know, basically told a total lie. It just, it just makes yourself look good or to get yourself out of trouble, um, or for some other reason, self-gain, then in that state of quietude, there's a, a real sense of shame comes up, and you feel embarrassed, and you know, just this sense of heat comes up, and you think, oh God, I wish I hadn't done that. And that's a direct result of, of you know, basic breaking moral guidelines. You know, if you lie, if something was in it, it will just tell us that's inappropriate. So if we can see that, we make that connection, well then we we keep the moral precepts because they're there to support the sense of inner well-being. When the Buddha's attendant, Venerable Ananda, asked the Buddha, said, what is the uh, what is the benefit of morality? The Buddha said, uh, it, gives, it leads to a state of mind free from remorse. Now, if you're not at the moment in a state of mind that's burdened with heavy remorse, then maybe that doesn't sound very much, but the next time you get caught up in real remorse and real regret, and you think, "I really wish I hadn't done that. I really, oh, if only I hadn't done that. If only I hadn't said that," and you really, real sense of regret, then try and remember what I just said. I think the Buddha said that well-disciplined morality leads us to a heart free from remorse. Oh God! You know, if I'd been more mindful, less heedless, I wouldn't have said that. I just wouldn't have done that. We've all done things and said things that we regret, I'm sure. Now, cultivating morality is actually the purpose of what the Buddha said, whether it's the 5 or the 10 or the 8 or the 227, is so as to keep the heart free from that pain. Because the pain of remorse is is, is so deadening, it's so so difficult. The good thing is when we feel remorse, we can still learn from it. Thankfully, um, well, I'm thankful anyway that that, um, well, that, Well, there's no guarantees, but what I understand of these things, um, I just remember the Buddha taught that um, there is no eternal condition. Yeah. So even if you make mistakes, even if you fall in hell, it's not a permanent condition. Yeah. So the idea of permanent hell is a, is a terrible thing to teach anybody. Um, so even if we do make big mistakes, serious mistakes, and there is a natural sense of remorse, there's no, no, there's no place for guilt, you know, no place for dwelling on guilt and, and, and really getting off on hating ourselves having made a mistake. There's absolutely no place for that. In reality, that's, that's unha- unnecessary, unhelpful and appropriate. A sense of shame, a sense of regret, that's got its place. It's just like the heart feels the pain as a natural consequence of having done something inappropriate. Just the same as the body feels the pain if you you know, if you stick your hand in the fire, the pain teaches you not to do it again. You know, if we do something with our body or speech that's inappropriate, then the pain that we feel teaches us not to do it again. And that's what shame is. And that's just fine, that's necessary. It protects us. What a Buddha called the protector of the world, Hiryotapa, a sense of moral shame. And that's, that's absolutely completely different from, from guilt. So whether somebody keeps the old five precepts has got to a real shot at it or not, I mean, I don't know. I think that's not really the point. The point is, does you know what is the function of morality or moral discipline or paying attention to the issue of integrity, individual integrity? What is the place for it? And the place where it is, as with the body posture and meditation, it's there to support us so that we're in a position, in an ideal, ideal situation, so that understanding can develop, personal realization can develop.